0: to Bible time, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, let this be true in our lives. Help us to uh, rightly divide this. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply this text to ourselves, and help us, Lord, to be obedient to your commandments and to your word in Jesus' name, because we love you, Lord, and we want to rightly reflect your love to this lost, dying world. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to preach your word. Please bless the preaching of your word with your power and with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, sobriety in our day is mostly relegated to the discussion of alcoholics, the so-called alcoholics, who the Bible calls drunks. Most people think that soberness has to do with whether or not you drink and how much you drink and if you drank and when you were sober or when you were drunk, and we compare the two. Certainly, you can compare some things there and you can make some applications there, but this word sober in its base and in its root of what it actually means, and I'm not talking about the root word, I'm just talking about the root meaning. Um, Here, this idea of sober has a lot more to do with your mental state than it has to do with your um whether or not you have been drinking spirits or alcohol liquor booze dr- um beer it really isn't dealing with liquor in this text as much as it's dealing with um level-headedness straight-headedness thinking right now, obviously, you can't think right when you get drunk, and that would be an extreme case. But here we would err if we would apply this only to drunkenness and say, here God is saying to be sober, so therefore you can't have a Heineken. Now, if you have a Heineken, you won't be sober, and then you won't have this apply to you. You say, well, I can hold my liquor and be sober. Who told you so? You think you can, but you don't even really know. You don't really know how foolish you get when you start drinking because you don't realize how foolish you are when you are drinking. It's the biggest joke in the world, the biggest bunch of lies in the world that someone can claim to be sober-minded while drinking drink. You go drinking drink, you're not sober-minded. As soon as you start taking alcoholic beverages Into your body, you lose sobriety by degrees until you become what is noticeably and publicly drunken. But you lose sobriety by degrees from the moment you start to drink those drinks. Some people call it being inebriated, the Bible calls it being drunken. The Bible's a lot more simple than most of your stuff today. The Bible just says it like it is. We've got all of these big psychological terms that we put on things so we can feel better about them. God just calls it drunkenness. And he told us in the last verse, look at the context, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Verse 7, our verse from the last lesson, "'For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation.'" So while this definitely applies to alcoholic ingestion, the the recreational use of beverages and such that if you indulge in those things, you will not be sober. There is a much deeper application here. Let's look at some other scriptures here. Um, First of all, it says, But... But let us who are of the day, this but pulls in the whole context here, um, but ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you. Ye are all the children of the light. This whole contrast between the children of the light and the children of the night, the children of the day and the children of the darkness. But let us who are of the day be sober. So we have this, the context being brought in of this contrast, but between these that in verse nine are appointed to wrath and those in verse five who are the children of the light. Verse 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath. Drunkenness belongs to those who are appointed to wrath. Drunkenness belongs to those who are children of the night. Drunkenness does not belong to those who are children of the day, but rather sobriety. So let's look here at Ephesians. Let's go to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. Here it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is one of the most um, vivid contrasts in the whole Bible between the lost man and the saved man. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, we'll possibly touch on Ephesians 2, 4, or 2, 3, I'm sorry, a little bit more tomorrow, whenever we talk about verse 9, um, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus. Christ. Here in Ephesians 2, he's saying, These that are dead in trespasses and sins, these that are walking according to the course of this world, according to the Spirit, that now worketh in the children of disobedience. These have their conversation according to the lusts of their flesh and of their mind. These follow their impulses. These follow their feelings. These serve their own flesh. These walk according to the flesh. The contrast here is in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. Now, most people can quote the verse down here in verse 8, "...for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." But this passage starts out with quickening, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then again in verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. A grace that does not extend its power beyond heaven into the realms of everyday life is not a grace worth having. A grace that supposedly saves you in the next life that has no power to change. You in this life is not a grace that is worth calling grace. It is not the grace of God that brings you to salvation. It is not the grace of God that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. Holy and justly in this present world as titus talks about and I may have missed some of the words there You can look it up in titus where it talks about the grace of god that hath appeared To all men that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts We should live soberly justly and unblameably in this present life again I've quoted it different both times. You can go look it up for yourself And find the actual verbatim word for word word of God. But the basic idea that's given there in Titus is that the grace of God changes the people that it is poured out upon. There is no such thing as a grace of God being bestowed on sinners that doesn't change the sinner the grace of God is powerful. Grace of God is often taught in conjunction with the sovereignty of God, with the predestination of the saints, with the election of those that are called to obtain salvation through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grace of God is one of the most powerful subjects in the whole Bible. And the grace of God is not grace of God. If it does not change the people that it affects the grace of, God alters the life of people here on earth as surely as it alters their future in heaven. So the grace of God here, even when we were dead in sins, it says, God who is rich in in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the positional element of grace, that by grace you are saved, and when you are saved by grace, look up here, when you are saved by grace, you are put in Christ in heaven, in heavenly places, seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. But the reality is that your body of death is still walking around on this earth, and grace does not stop at placing you positionally in the heavenly places, but grace extends to your everyday life and gives you power, if you are a son of God, to live as a son of God. Grace of God gives you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It gives you the desire to follow God, and it gives you the power to to follow God. Therefore, grace is not only something that gives you a position with God, but grace is also a a power, a force, a force that causes change, a force that gives you the ability to follow Christ, a power that is greater than all my sin. We sing the song, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all my sin grace that is greater than all my sin not only positionally in the courtroom of heaven but practically in a day-to-day basis that that grace that I have been called to that grace that I've been brought into I'm not under the law I'm under grace but that grace that I am under teaches me to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That grace that I am under gives me power to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. The grace that I am under gives me a new walk and a new life in this life, or it's not grace. And if you're not under that grace practically, you cannot lay claim on it positionally. Now, you may be saved, and you may be backslidden, and you may be in a process of chastening, and God may be working on bringing you back around to a position of submission to his will, And in that case, you might not look like a Christian, and you may still be a Christian just in the process of chastening. But let me give you just a little helpful hint here today. Nowhere in the Bible does anybody who is not following God have a right to claim the position in Christ and expect anyone to believe it. You have no right to be assumed under grace. In fact, in the Bible, it says that you were dead in trespasses and sins. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. You, in fact, have the right to be treated as guilty. In America, under America, if I have the word right, jurisprudence, under American, the American justice system, you have the right to to be treated as innocent until proven guilty. But God is not American. God is God, and God made the earth and the world and all the inhabitants of the world, and God set the bounds of the nations, and the nations owe their existence to God, and God is not under the rule of American law. And God has already said that you are under condemnation. Jesus came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, And he said, I've not come to condemn the world. He says, you are condemned already. I've not come to condemn you. You are condemned already. This world lieth in wickedness. This world lies in sins. And every man, woman, and child alive on the face of this earth is living under the condemnation and wrath of Almighty God unless they have found an advocate a propitiation through Jesus Christ who died for them and was buried and rose again the third day. It is not the right of any. Any person on the face of this earth to assume that any other person is saved. It is in fact right and their right to assume that you are lost. The burden of proof lies with you to prove your innocence in God's justice system because you have already been found guilty. In America, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. Well, here man was innocent. God proved them guilty and you are guilty until proven innocent. It's an ironic switch that people say, judge not, how do you know I'm not saved? The reality is we should say, judge not, how do you know that person is saved? You are making a judgment call to claim that someone is saved. You, and if you don't have the fruit to back up your mouth, you best shut up and get right with God. If you don't have the life to, to 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 prove that you are truly his, you'd best just shut your mouth and get on your face before God until you have the fruit that can display what you're going to say. Because what you tell other people doesn't really matter. It's what you are on the inside and what you live out before people that will count far more than what you say with your lips. So hereby grace are you saved and have, he says he's raised us up together and made us sit together and have heavenly places in Christ. Now this grace here, he says in um, verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This grace that you have been saved by has created you unto good works that God who predestined you, ordained you, and elected you to salvation has before. For ordained that you should walk in them, if you're really His child, God has ordained that you walk in good works. So here in the Bible, in our text, First Thessalonians five eight, it says, "But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation." If we are of the day, then we are called to be sober. Go to the Book of Philippians and chapter three. Philippians in chapter 3. We're going to try and just run through several scriptures here and get a good handle on what it means to be sober. Philippians 3 and verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now here, these people are not walking soberly. Again, a sober person in this sense of drunken or sober is one who has not ingested alcohol to the point of having his mind altered, which begins the first drink that you take, by the way. Now, you may think that you can control it, and that's why the Bible says wine is a mockery or strong drink is raging, whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The moment you begin ingesting alcohol, it begins affecting you. And the more you ingest, the more it affects you. And you're not the one who has the right to say when you're drunk, God is. So you better watch it, lest you in your high-mindedness high mindedness sin against God. Here these have, this takes this to the next level though, in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shield shame, who mind earthly things. These are people who are not sober. These people are not walking as children of the light. Look there at verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. You say, I can't get over my addiction. I can't get over my lusts. I can't get over my covetousness. I can't get over my anger. I can't get over my pride. The Bible says that God will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according unto the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself." Now this change that will be in heaven in verse 20 and is preached about in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 3 is a change that we wait for in its totality in heaven, a change that is promised in the future in heaven, but a change that we can enter into practically on a daily basis through faith today. It is a change that is not in, in any way permanently affected until we reach heaven. But it, it, is, it is a change that we can practically enter into on a daily basis. He says in chapter 4, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, st- so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Look at verse f- 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men the Lord is at hand. Sober-mindedness has moderation involved with it. Sober-mindedness has self-control involved with it. Have you ever seen a couple, a young couple that um, fall in love and they're set to be married and they completely lose their heads? They can't even think straight. They can't carry on a conversation. They can't hear what people are saying. All they can do is stare at each other. They're gone, people say. Oh, they're just gone. They're Twitter-pated, all kinds of phrases that we use for that. And listen to me, as much as everybody wants to glorify that, and I don't want to demean it too much, it's a wonderful thing to fall in love whenever it's in the Lord, but at the same time, you're called to be sober. You're called to be sober. And if you're so punch-drunk in love that you can't think or function, then you are not fulfilling this text. We're called to be sober. By the way, you get in trouble when you get that way. That's, that's not a way that you should aspire to get. Now, the world exalts that thing. The world exalts that kind of punch drunk puppy love that can't see straight or think straight. But let me just help you a little bit here today. Look up here. That's not going to last. That kind of puppy love is not going to last or you'll starve to death. Because sooner or later, reality is going to set in. There's going to be bills that have to be paid. You're going to have to get back to real life and you're going to get hit right between the face with the fact that life is happening. And then guess what? Things will change. That beautiful woman who you thought was so ravishing, you're going to wake up one morning and she's there in the bathroom puking her guts out. Her hair's matted and a mess. She's got bags under her eyes and gray circles around her eyes because she hasn't slept for two days. She's sick. The kitchen is a mess. There's dirt everywhere. The floor hasn't been vacuumed. She hasn't made your bed for you or done your laundry. You don't know what to do. You leave for work and you go to work and all you can think about is what a wreck the house is. You bring home something for her to eat, trying to be nice, and she throws it up again. And life isn't all roses and it isn't all pretty and bad things are happening and everybody, and guess what? You have to find, you're going to find out if you're not going to be sober minded going into it, there's going to come a day where you're going to wake up and have to get sober. Minded. you know there's a lot of divorces in America because we have the Disney World idea from this false fairy tale world that you see the beautiful woman she sees the handsome man they ride off into the sunset on white on one white horse and they get off to their castle and live happily ever after. They're never sick, never never have any distractions, just as in love with each other as the day they started. And the fact of the matter is, it's not going to last. Even in love, falling in love with people, we are children of light. Christians should not fall in love like the world. But we've filled ourselves with so much of the world's junk and so much of the world's trash that we cannot even keep our heads straight in love. Now you say, so um, tell me about your courtship, Mr. Burks, and I would say guilty as charged. And there's things that I regret to this day because I lost my head to a degree whenever I fell in love with the woman God gave me to marry. God calls us to sober-mindedness soberness. This soberness goes beyond just drinking alcohol. It goes beyond marriage, love and marriage. He says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Have you ever met a young man who got a, um, a new toy? Let's say you got a four-wheeler or a paintball gun or a pickup truck, um, and whatever your circumstance in life is, whatever it is that, that really gets you going, that you're really excited about, and he gets to where he can't think about anything else but that thing. He's become drunk on this life. You meet a young lady and she's just started a new series of books and they're good books and she's read 4 of them in 2 days. They're only 500 pages each. She's barely ate, barely slept, barely functioned, barely done what the what she needs to be done to even care for her body. She comes to church and her mind is in a total Fan, uh, fantasy world because she's often this set of books that's not sober minded. This is what we're called to reject. This is what we're called to refute. Now, the world loves drunkenness in all its forms. The Lord the world lives to be drunk. The world wants to be drunk on thrills. The world wants to be drunk on excitement. The world wants to be drunk on pleasure. The world wants to be drunk on Advancement. The world wants to be drunk on its career. I know men who have never woke up because they've been working. 16 hours a day, seven days a week for years, their family's gone and they don't really even know their family's gone. They don't really miss them. it's just, it's, they're just going to work and they get up and they work and then they go to sleep when they're done working half the time, probably wearing their work clothes. They catch a shower every now and then and they go back to work and all they do is work and they are consumed and drunken with their work. That's not sober minded. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Being sober is having your gaze and your mind locked on Jesus. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. To be sober is to those things which ye have both learned, and hurt received and hurt and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you this is what it is to be sober to be level-headed to have your head on straight to have a good head on your sh- shoulder let's look at a few references that directly mention soberness here in the Bible go to first Timothy. Chapter 3. Here we get into the qualifications of serving in church offices. This is a true saying. He says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. Now that word bishop is the is used in direct correlation with the words elder and pastor throughout the Bible. They're used interchangeably. They have more to do with the style of administration of the work than they have to do with different offices. They're not different offices, same office, different words based on the different um, administration. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine. So here is not given to wine as its own thing. He's saying this guy needs to not be hitting the beer bottle, not be going to the wine bottle, um, not even wanting, and by the way, the pleasure of non-alcoholic wine. This guy needs to have control and not be brought under subjection of his belly. No striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth his well, his own house. Back there in verse 2, he says he must be sober. Here is this bishop that must be blameless. He must be sober. And look, it's not the wine that's in direct context. Vigilant comes before sober. Good behavior comes after sober. So we find here in its association that sober has to do more with vigilance. Careful watch careful attending to reading, to the word of God, to doctrine, to the things that you've received of me, the same commit thou to faithful men, um, holding faith and a good conscience. These, These, all of the scriptures that you've been taught, be vigilant, watch, be close, pay close attention, stick close to the Bible, be sober and of good behavior. Good behavior means not goofing off. Now we all know that if you're if you're this is not the same word as somber S O M B R E. Sober S O B E R is different from somber S O M B R E. The the one S O M B R E somber is more like dead as a tomb. Long-faced, pickle-faced. He ate a whole jar of pickles for breakfast, lunch, and dinner yesterday. He's got indigestion, and he's letting everybody know about it. That's somber. That is not what this is saying. This is not saying that the preacher has to walk around all long-faced and glum with a big long stick to wrap people on the head that aren't walking in line. This, that is not what this is talking about. The Bible has many other verses such as, Laughter doeth good like medicine. Okay, now you've got to keep this thing in balance. The Bible warns against foolish jesting. Be careful about that. Stick to things that matter. Stick to things that are good. But this does not mean you cannot have a sense of humor. God has a sense of humor. It's all through the Bible. And God gave us a sense of humor, but we need to keep it in check and keep it in things that are pure and lovely and of good report, and never let it devolve into sin. And that's hard because of our natural man. So this soberness here that he's called for has to do with vigilance and it has to do with good behavior as well as not given to wine and things like that. But this is dealing way beyond drunkenness. This is dealing with he can't be a man whose God is his belly. He cannot be a man who is run by his emotions. He cannot be a man who does everything that he does based on how he feels that day. He's got to be level-headed. He's got to have his mind settled in the things of God. 1 Timothy 3, 4 talks about all gravity. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. That gravity means that he understands the seriousness of life. He understands that he is in a battle. He understands that we're in a war and he is conducting himself in a way that is befitting an officer in the army of the king and not as an enlisted man running around on his night off when he gets a pass to the city just corrupting Rousing and goofing off and having a good time at the expense of his commission. So here in 1 Timothy 3, 8, we find that the deacons also must be grave, not double-tongued. And it says then also in verse 11 that the wives must be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So we find that sober, again, by association is lumped with not slandering, faithful in all things, grave, having control over the mouth. Sober means keeping your mouth in line, not letting it be used by the devil. Sober here is a big topic. Go to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2.16. Now there's, there's so much here. You can see in First Timothy that those, um, Widows that have damnation because they cast off their first faith. They learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. This is not sober. 2 Timothy 2.16. We'll go there. This he says, um, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And this goes back to verse 14. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is so lacking in our day. This is so lacking. People think pastor means he's got to be someone with charisma. Not even using that in the Pentecostal use of the word charismatic, but charisma being affluent, a people person, able to win friends and influence people. That has nothing to do with it the call of God, the study of the scriptures, the stability of knowing the word of God and being settled with a mind that is established in the word of God and the doctrines that have been passed on to us. There's a contrast here in Second Timothy 3, 6. Here he says, for he's speaking of these wicked men, lovers of their own selves that rise up. He says, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. How many of you ladies here today want to be a silly woman, led away of diverse lusts. I remember a group of young ladies in a church once that had this, they formed themselves a little club and they called it the Giggling Girls Club. The thing was something to flee from and get away from, and all it did was increase into more ungodliness. It wasn't anything useful or good, and there's nothing good or useful that can come from a giggling girls club. Okay, now the world, the world exalts such tripe. The world exalts all that trash. The world wants you young ladies to flaunt your bodies and be loud and speak whatever's on your mind and dream big and tr- and put yourself out there because the world wants to to turn you into a harlot and a slut whore and a daughter of Herod that'll dance before them. But God wants you to be sober. God wants you to have moderation. God wants you not to know how to shut your mouth. God wants you to know how to control yourself. Silly women get led away by wicked men because they are laden with sins. God wants you to be sober today. Go to Titus, the next book in your Bible. Titus chapter one and verse eight here. The servant of the Lord, let's see, I didn't get the title here. Elders is what he says here. If, um, ordain elders in every city in verse 5. And here he says in verse 8 that this, um, in verse 7, he says a bishop, using it in direct conjunction with elder, verse 8 must be a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. Temperate being balanced, temperate being with moderation, temperate knowing how to balance the different doctrines of the Bible and different reactions to not go to extremes. A man who is able to control himself, look at verse nine, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. Sober. Another area that the world likes to get you out of sobriety and into drunkenness is fear-mongering. Now, the way the Christian gets involved in fear-mongering is through studying the end times with an eye to unfulfilled prophecy and the coming of the Antichrist. And you get so soaked in the fear-mongering and looking for the Antichrist that pretty soon you become useless. God wants you to be sober-minded so that whenever they come out with microchips, you don't lose six months of productivity, and the kingdom of God fretting about the mark of the beast. God wants you to be sober. He wants you to be level-headed, even-keeled. Who wants to be on a ship that in flat water, in good water, the thing rolls from side to side with just the smallest shift of weight? And then there's a storm coming. Who wants to be on the fast little boat that rolls from side to side? Or who wants to be on the slow, flat boat that handles the storm much better? Now, I'm not saying flat boats handle the storm much better, but what I am saying is who wants to be on the boat that handles the storm and goes through it steady, or who wants to be on the boat that's quick and gets from point to point quickly, but rocks from side to side violently, even in flat waters, and here comes your storm. What do you want to be on? You want to be on the stable boat that's going to make it through the storm, and God wants you to be that stable boat. Do you remember the context of this whole thing? Um, here in First Thessalonians, the context was um, back in chapter three that he sent Timotheus to establish them in their faith. And there in verse thirteen of chapter three, to the end he may, speaking of Christ, to the end of Christ, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ with all His saints. God wants you to be sober. He wants you to be stable. He wants you to be steady in what you believe. Now, um, here, this the bishop must be sober, holding fast the faithful word. In verse um, nine, there he says that he may be able with sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Teaching who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Go to Titus chapter 2 and verse 2. The aged men be sober, Grave, temperate. Notice no mention of alcoholic beverages here. He's going way deeper than alcohol. Sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. And now finally, he brings in wine, which would be an excess use of alcoholic beverages, leading to a lack of sobriety in a even worldly sense. You see, here's a problem. Christians want to define sobriety by the world's definition. The world defines sobriety if you can hold your liquor, but let's just real quick check a couple other things. The world defines adultery if you actually sleep with another woman who's married to another man. But if you just want to go look at dirty pictures and flirt with all the other women in your workplace, the world does not call that adultery, but Christ does. He said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. But the Christian world wants to take the world's definition of drunkenness And apply it so that they have excuse. By the way, they want to do it with the same sin of immorality too. It's no different thing. All you people out there, you bunch of wine bibbers out there, want to make excuse for alcoholic use of of recreational use of alcoholic beverages. You're no better than the guy that says that porn is okay as long as you don't go commit the act. No better. Same camp. And by the way, you'll usually find them running in the same crowd and swapping their excuses and enjoying each other's vices. Now, here we have the aged men must be sober. Verse 5 here, the um, young women are to be taught to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their their own husbands. But look at verse 4, I skipped it. The young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, if you're a feminazi out there, you ain't sober. You're drunk on worldly doctrines. Listen to me today. Sober means level-headed. Your head spun on straight according to the Bible. Get your bearings according to the word of God. Get sober. So here in verse 6 that the young men, young men likewise also or young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. And how does he go on to apply that? In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness. Doubtful disputations are a form of lack of soberness. He says, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness. Gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That he that is on the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Now, there's some preachers I love who use, who like to use jokes. But let me tell you something it always, always ends up costing. Always. The Bible says dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor, so doth a little folly in him that is in reputation for wisdom. And when you dive into a bunch of jokes... And we all do sooner or later. It's natural. It happens easily. It's human nature. That doesn't make it justifiable. And when you're standing there and you start diving into jokes, it's going to bite you sooner or later, it's going to cost you, and it's going to cost Christ and the reputation of Christ. It doesn't mean I don't love you, and it doesn't mean I don't laugh. I'll laugh with the rest of everybody else at a good joke, but the problem is jokes backfire, and sooner or later, in the right setting, in the right time, or you could say the wrong setting, and the wrong time, and with maybe just a slip of the tongue, a joke goes from a funny joke that's kind of innocent to a joke that's really not innocent, and that causes everyone to blush, and you've And you've discredited your ministry and the work of God. Now, God can get you past that. There's a lot of things that are a lot worse than a slip of the tongue and a joke going bad. So don't think that I'm standing here condemning everyone that ever jokes. I'm just saying it's dangerous. It's dangerous. You get into it. It's going to. You play with fire. You're going to get burned. You go joking in the pulpit. It's going to bite you someday. It will bite you. I've never seen anybody get away with it without it biting them sooner or later. I don't like eating crow, by the way. tastes nasty. I've eaten plenty of it for for my life already. I don't want to eat more. So here in verse 7, you have the pattern of good works and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is on the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you that means there's not hypocrisies you're balanced your doctrines balanced your thought processes are balanced you're using scriptures in context rightly divided you're not going off into the deeps of opinion and teaching anti-doctrines which are doctrines of men designed to destroy false doctrine but that then become false doctrine themselves because they're not founded on scripture to exalt christ instead they're designed by man to attack a false doctrine they always backfire just like the joking does You go into anti-doctrines, it's going to back backfire. You say, What are anti-doctrines? I just told you. Anti-doctrines are doctrines created by men taking scriptures out of context to defeat false doctrine that is truly false and to try and teach doctrine that is truly true. But as soon as you start taking scriptures out of doctrine or out of context to attack other doctrines, you are in danger. It's going to happen. Sooner or later, you're going to (coughs) slip. And you'll be the one teaching heresy. You just got to teach the Bible. Just stick with the Bible. Stick with sound speech that cannot be condemned. Rightly divide the word of truth. Keep your scriptures in context. No matter how tempting it is to take that scripture out of context so that you can bring the baseball bat up against the head of the wicked lies that the enemy is telling, stick to the Bible. Stick to the Bible. The only way to not go into extremes and anti-doctrines is to stick to the Bible. You've just got to stick to the Bible, and we all fail in this. You preach the word very long, you'll fail in this, um, and I know that I have as well. Ephesians 5 and verse 15, Try not to repent when I do, but that doesn't mean I never have. I I probably have. I probably will again, though I do not want to, and I will do my best not to with God's by God's grace. So here in Ephesians 5 and 15, he tells us, well, let's look at 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sleight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Have you ever seen a child tossed to and fro? A child can be giggling happily one second and weeping profusely the next second. Tossed to and fro, he says, we should not, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. He says in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. The Bible talks about your speech being all way with grace, seasoned with salt in Colossians 4.6. Let's go on with this sober mindedness. Again, sober means thinking right, level headed, getting your head on straight. And this requires the renewing of your mind. Go to Romans chapter 12. In order to be sober biblically, you need your mind renewed because you do not think soberly naturally. You do not think God's thoughts, and I do not think God's thoughts. We have to constantly inject God's thoughts, i.e. the Bible, into our heart, speaking the truth in love. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, chapter 12, verse 1, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Get this, here we're going to get down to brass tacks right here. You ready? You ready for the torpedo below the water, water line? not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So sober-mindedness thinks little of me, much of others, and most of God. Sober-mindedness puts us in our place. Sober-mindedness is opposite of high-mindedness. All these other things that we've talked about are really results of, of high-mindedness. Why is somebody tossed to and fro in emotional extremes? Because they are their number one most important person. And when Mr. Number One is satisfied, they can giggle with glee. And when Mr. One Number One is disappointed, they can weep profusely like their most beloved has just died, even though it was nothing more than a piece of bubble gum or a lollipop. This is where the rubber meets the road. Sober, to be sober, means to get yourself in your proper place mentally. To not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Now, the world doesn't teach this. The world teaches the exact opposite. Put yourself out there. Let yourself, let your voice be heard. Dream big. Follow your dreams. Follow your heart. You've only got one life. This is your chance. This is your time. This is your day, they tell the brides. This is your day. It's all about you. And the bride goes, yes, it's all about me. And your wedding stinks. From that point on, it's a stench. The whole thing's a stench. Be sober-minded. Think right. This requires a renewing of the mind. Go to First Corinthians chapter 2. We have to keep moving. We have to keep moving because I've got to stick with the scriptures God gave me or I'll get outside the bounds of sobriety. I've got to keep my own self-temperate and have moderation. Keep myself from running rabbits. This applies to all of us. Um, so 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, get this, but we have the mind of Christ. This is the epitome of being sober. This is what it all boils down to. This is where it's at. Have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. But then he goes on in chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal and walk as men. (coughs) I'm sorry, I got my verses mixed up. Verse three, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith I am of Paul and another I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Sober-mindedness puts Christ first, others next, myself last. These people are all fighting over their favorite preacher. And Paul says, you're not spiritual. You're not walking in the mind of Christ. You're walking in the carnal mind. You're not, moder- you're not in moderation. You're not temperate. You're not speaking the things that are right. Your speech isn't seasoned with salt anymore. I can't speak to you as concerning spiritual. I've got to speak to you as unto carnal. Now, Romans 8, 6 says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Sober minded is rock solid spiritual mindedness. Go to Philippians 2 and verse 5. (coughs) Philippians 2 and verse 5. I have yet to meet anybody that actually lives this every day and is um, can exemplify this perfectly. Christ is the only one I've ever found. But that's what the, the apostle is going to bring us to right here. Um, Philippians 2 and verse 4, Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And you better have a King James Bible if you're reading these verses, by the way, or you'll find yourself repeating blasphemy. blasphemy. Most of the other Bibles blaspheme right here. Um, You can check your Bible by this. Look at what it actually says, not what you think it says. Now, it says, "...let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus." Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You want to be sober, get humble, get low, get the mind of Christ, become a servant, humble yourself even unto death, die to yourself, Die to your desires, die to your preferences, die to your needs. Let everyone else be first. (coughs) That is the epitome of what it means to be sober. So as children of the day, we're called in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let's look at that breastplate of faith and love. Now a breastplate is a piece of metal that they would form, possibly, sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes they would, depending on your wealth and the time you had to prepare it, and they would make a piece of metal that would fit over your breast, over your chest and possibly your stomach, and that piece of metal was designed particularly to protect your heart. Because if you get struck in the heart, that's it, your fighting is over. So it would protect the heart, that piece of metal... <clears throat> was designed to take the blows of swords and spears and arrows and not to bend and not to, not to break. The breastplate, if it breaks, is more harm than good. If that metal splits and bends into your body, then the breastplate becomes part of the wound-making device instead of being a help to you. This is why you don't really see breastplates anymore because um, guns shoot right through them, and that all started all the way back with the English longbow that would pierce the French armor in the Hundred Years' War, and kind of brought an end to the fancy and elaborate breastplates, but in any case, this breastplate, this breastplate of faith and love in the Bible must be underlaid with sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness, soberness, is the underlayer of God's armor. Now, as soon as you read about the armor, most of you, your minds immediately go to Ephesians chapter 6, and that's the right place to go. Ephesians (coughs) 6, excuse me, verse 14 says, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. (coughs) So, sober mindedness is the thick cotton padding that goes underneath the breastplate. They would, the knights back in the day when they rode their horses and wore their armor, knights would wear a thick cotton batting type of quilted fabric underneath their armor. And the purpose of this was to pad their armor and reduce the effect of the blows. If somebody hits a piece of metal that's on your chest, will you feel it? It will transfer most of the energy to you. And the thick cotton batting was there to help um, reduce that effect, to help absorb the shock, and to keep the breastplate from wearing against you and giving you sores. Sober-mindedness is the underlay- underlayment for God's armor. The breastplate itself is made of faith and love, but Ephesians 6.14 says that it's made of righteousness. So which is true? Is it a breastplate of faith or love or righteousness? Which is right? You got it. All three are right. Both. Both faith and love and righteousness. All three of those are what the breastplate is made of. So let's look at this real quick and then we'll be done. We're not going to go a whole lot longer here. So this breastplate of righteousness, Galatians 5, 6 says that faith worketh by love. So this faith and love are that which make up the breastplate of righteousness. I want you to think about it this way. Faith is the engine... Love is the fuel, righteousness is the product that comes out. True faith and true love always produce righteousness and good works. And those righteous good works, the righteousness of Christ practically is what makes your breastplate. Now, we're barely scratching the surface of this problem. The Bible says faith or of this truth, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible also says there about um, love. Let's go to Second Peter 1. This will tell you how to grow in love. Go there real quick. Second Peter chapter 1. Here he tells us um, in verse 5, Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at the last thing in that list, in verse 7, "...and to brotherly kindness, charity." Charity is the outworking and expression of biblical Christ-like love. Charity is love with boots on it. Charity is love in action. And if you are going to have a breastplate of faith, if you are going to protect your heart as a Christian, if, which is the heart of the matter, this is where all true Christian productivity and fruit comes from, is from the heart. Salvation comes when a man believes in the heart. And so here this breastplate, in all of its importance, is based first in faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith, though, worketh by love. That love works, as we read in our Bible here, by virtue, by um, knowledge, by temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and finally charity. So as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, applying the truth of God's word, obeying God, putting boots on what you hear, obeying the Bible, that faith works by love and produces the practical effect of righteousness, which is your breastplate. That righteousness is a breastplate. That righteousness will protect your reputation when people lie about you and allow you to continue to minister without that righteousness, you are vulnerable without that righteousness, you can be destroyed. But that breastplate of righteousness <coughs> that breastplate of righteousness is of faith which worketh by love and thereby produces righteousness. Positional righteousness is imputed at salvation. Practical daily Christ-like righteousness is produced day by day by faith which worketh by love. Reading your Bible, loving the Lord that gave you the Bible, obeying what the Bible says, doing what it says. This is the the product of your faith which worketh by love and this produces a righteousness that will be a breastplate that will resist all of the attacks of the devil. Go to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. He says here, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, again, we know that Christ's imputed righteousness is the only way that, I, that we can be righteous. The Bible says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and it doesn't say that that changes when I get saved. All of my righteousnesses, which are by the law, are as filthy rags. All of my own attempts to discipline myself and produce godlike fruit in my life are as filthy rags and mean nothing. But the righteousness, which is Through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith is not only imputed in heaven, but it is imputed practically to those that walk by faith, which works by love. When you love God and keep his commandments, God imputes practically to your daily life his righteousness, which is a breastplate that is placed over your heart to protect you from the fiery darts of the enemy." This breastplate is a breastplate of faith and love and righteousness. All three are right. It says in the the second part of our text there, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In Ephesians 6 and verse 17, he says there, and take the helmet of salvation. And take the helmet of salvation. Again, the helmet of salvation positionally is on your head in the heavenlies because you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies when you're saved. Positionally, the helmet is on your head. But practically, in order to put the helmet of salvation on your head, you need sober-mindedness to rightly recognize your inability to please God and God's great grace to you. Because what is it that gives you the helmet? The hope of salvation. So you say, is the helmet hope or is it salvation? Is salvation salvation without hope? And is hope, hope without salvation? The hope of salvation is the well-grounded, as Pastor Ed always says, well-grounded, well-founded, knowing that what God said he will do, he will do. That hope, then, is based on the promises of God. That hope means obeying God and knowing that God will do what God said he would do, even though it doesn't look like God will. God has done it. Go to First John 3, 2. In this matter of practical versus positional, you have Christians who throw away the positional and believe only in the practical, and they believe that your position in Christ is dependent on your works on your practical outworking of the word of God. And then you have Christians who believe in the positional and they throw out the practical. And they believe that due to some kind of um, fairy tale prayer that they prayed that has no practical effect in their life, that they're entitled to all the positional blessings of God. Listen to me today, both are right. Positional righteousness is not positional righteousness if it does not affect practical righteousness in the life of the person that has it. And practical righteousness is not practical righteousness unless it is already positional in Christ. What does that mean? If you are really in Christ and righteous in Christ in heaven, you will be righteous on earth too, practically. That's all it means. And if you are really actually righteous on earth and not just self-righteous, if your righteousness is the righteousness of faith, then it is there because you are positionally righteous in Christ. (coughs) Now, beloved, now are we the sons of God. 1 John 3, 2. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. In Romans chapter 5, it tells us that hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That this hope is what gets us through the trials. The hope is what gets us through the battles. The hope is what carries us forward because, again, it doth not appear what we shall be. I don't look like I'm going to look. I don't carry the name that I'm going to carry. I'm not dressed in the fine linen, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of the saints in heaven. I'm not wearing that today. I'm wearing just simple old cotton clothing today, not the fine linen of Christ. It doth not appear, yet appear what we shall be. Romans 5 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand. Do you see the position and the practicality in the same sentence? We have access position into uh, access by faith. That's position into this grace wherein we stand. That's practical life and rejoice. In, <coughs> excuse me. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the um, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which, which is given unto us. So I want you to get this in Romans 5 here as we close. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The practical salvation here mentioned in Romans 5, he's saying is the, if God has really done the positional, then you can bank on God for the practical. That's what he's saying. And this breastplate of faith and love, this helmet, which is the hope of salvation that he's telling you to put on your head as a child of the day, is rooted here in the established belief in God and his word, this soberness, this understanding of the reality of where we're at, who we are, who God is, what God is doing, not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, stable, established, established, sober, and putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would grant us this, this soberness, Father, that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Lord, that we would put on the armor that you've given us. Help us to follow you in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen.